Graduation day is fun. Uh, Richard, in honor of you, I'm going to read from Apples of Gold this morning. <laughs> I won't. Um, up here on the platform, you see the remnants of a children's musical from last weekend. Uh, and so over the last couple of weeks, we have celebrated our kids and the end of a school year and Mother's Day. Today, we honor our graduates. And last weekend, the musical um, was Fat, Fat Jehoshaphat. And if you saw it, you know exactly what that story is. It's a story out of the Bible about an amazing prayer that God answered and how there is power in prayer, how he answers prayer, how we need to seek him. Uh, but one of the things that we realized as we were getting ready for the children's musical is that most of us don't know the story of Jehoshaphat very well. Even the account that the kids showed us last week was something that was new, different, uh, that we hadn't seen. And so as part of what we were getting ready to do as we kind of roll down through the end of the year into the summer, we decided that we would go back and introduce you to that character and tell you the story. And so this morning we begin what is a three-week look into an Old Testament book where we talk about Jehoshaphat. And so the series is entitled, Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. Now, how many of you ever heard the phrase, Jumpin' Jehoshaphat? All right. That, that's where, that's, this is where it starts. It actually starts in Scripture. Uh, now, there's a lot of variations of where that phrase comes from, but ultimately the phrase comes from two things. One, that Jehoshaphat just didn't roll off the tongue like it needed to. And so, uh, it was shortened to Jehoshaphat. And the reason it became such a part of the vernacular, at least for us as we know it, is because it was uttered in a movie and it was the favorite expression of a character played by Cary Grant in the film His Girl Friday. And he would often say, jumping Jehoshaphat. And he would say it with his accent. And they played back and forth with it because he was trying to nail Jehoshaphat. But with the accent, it just wasn't working again. So he landed on Jehoshaphat. So for us, we go back now. We're going to use that phrase and we're going to introduce you to this character that you may not be familiar with. And we're going to go into the Old Testament book and find out what his life meant, what was going on, and why he has such a prominent role. And it really is a prominent role in the Old Testament, and what it means, more importantly, to us today, and we're going to dig into that. And so this morning, we start our series, Jumping Jehoshaphat, we'll say it the Old Testament way, um, but we'll go back and forth, I'm sure. Let's pray uh, as we get ready to roll. God, I thank you that this is a day we can celebrate. There's a lot to celebrate this time of year. It is the end of a school year. We celebrate the accomplishments of our grads. It is that transition from spring into summer. And it's a time where the pace of life changes. And I pray that we would be able to move through that change very easily. I pray that it would go smoothly. And I also pray that in the midst of that change, we would be willing to anchor our lives to you. and Discover that even in the midst of change, there's something that you're trying to show us and teach us and do for us. And so, God, as we continue our celebration, I pray that our focus would be on you and you alone. Help us to see you clearly this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and open them up into the Old Testament. Second Chronicles is where we're going to be. Second Chronicles uh, is where we will find the story for the next few weeks that we're going to work through. Uh, 
uh, as we talk about Jehoshaphat. Now, um, this for us, as far as the way we kind of do uh, the teaching portion, is gonna, the pacing is going to be a little bit different. We're going to just kind of kind of dig in and move through the verses uh, and study them as we go a little bit. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, open, open them up. Uh, it'll be helpful. Follow along. If you use an electronic device, uh, then power it up and get it glowing uh, out there. If you uh, uh, don't have one that you like to use, download the 434 app. And you can grab one off there. We're going to talk about the app at the end of worship this morning for just a minute. Um, but we're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 17 today, verses 1 through 19. And we're going to talk about the right way to jump. And so as you're digging there, you're heading for that Old Testament book. It's right after First Chronicles. <laughs> right before you get to Ezra. Okay. And we're going to look at those verses and kind of go through them and, and, and think about them just a little bit. And I'll point some things out along the way, and, and it'll go along pretty quickly, I think. Um, as we begin, I want to tell you a story about a group of engineering professors that were invited to fly in a plane. Right after they were seated on the plane, they were informed that the plane they were sitting in was built by their students. Frantically, one by one, they all began to get up and move and exit the plane in a maniacal panic. And they all got off the plane, except for one lone professor that stayed put. Sitting calmly in his seat, someone came over and said, why have you stayed on the plane when everyone else left? And he said, well, I have plenty of confidence in my students. And knowing them, I can assure you of the fact that this plane will never start and get off the ground. <laughs> now, he, he was confident in what he had taught. He was confident in their ability to learn. Um, I know our graduates will do much better than that with life. They've learned lessons. They're moving forward. Um, but, but there are some things that we can look at in life and have extreme confidence in them. And one of the things that I am extremely confident in is the truth and the reality of what we find in God's Word. And the longer I study it, the longer I'm at it, the longer I dig into it, the more confident I become in that. That confidence through the years has just grown. It's never waned. And so I think that there's some times that we go into what I would consider more obscure passages, maybe, um, things that you don't normally look at. But yet when you get there, you discover great truth if you take the time to find it. And so a lot of what we're going to do today and in the next couple of weeks um, really look very much like my study notes in my journal uh, as, as I study through passages. And, and, and when I work through passages, even this particular series, uh, no doubt about it, as I prayed through it, we were looking at the kids' musical and looking at the story and, and then had that moment in the children's musical where as we were looking at the musical, it was a, that question that came up, you know, most folks probably don't know this story. And then, as we always do, when we really do this with the musicals, we were kind of doing some background work on it and looking at it. And, and so as I was reading the story, it, it dawned on me that there are, is a lot about Jehoshaphat that we don't know and don't realize. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, stuff's just confusing. And so even today, you're going to get to hear what I know you love to come and hear. You will, lo you will get to hear your pastor absolutely butcher <laughs> Hebrew names and words. And see, I know how you are because I'm the same way. When I'm doing personal studies and stuff like that, and I come to a whole flock of names. I just call them a flock of names. They look really confusing and weird and twisted. I, I skip it. Now, 
this side nodded. This side is spiritual. <laughs> you read them or you're liars. I'm not sure which, but one of the two. But this side all went, oh, oh, we skip them. And I got it. I skip them too because, you know, I'm, I'm in it for the personal study of the application. Surely the names mean not that much, but I, I think they do. I'm not about to tell you what the names mean, but I will butcher them for you just so you feel better about yourself. It's my gift to you today. Uh, I want to help you build uh, that self-worth and self-esteem. But, but this story is loaded with stuff, and you're going to find it in the next few weeks, because where we, where we were last week with our kids' music school is the end of the story in some ways. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ramp up over the next three weeks to get to that ending. Uh, and then kind of put an exclamation point behind it. Um, but this is a miraculous story. And it is a story that's loaded with miracles. It's a story of faithfulness uh, in unfaithful times. It's a story about how it is to zone into and tune into and stay true to the things of God when no one else seems to want to value that, when it's not important. And there's a lot of folks out there that would distract you and pull you away from it. Jehoshaphat is not perfect at it. He's learning to do it, and he's trying to do it, and he's trying to get it right, but yet those influences that sometimes do, do distract him. And I know that none of you can relate to that because we live in a perfect world, right? Where everybody you're around loves God, we all seek God, and there's nothing out there to ever distract you, right? Oh, you don't live there? Then maybe this has a lot more to do with you than you think it does. And maybe by the time we're done over the next few weeks, you're going to go, you know, that story really resonated a lot more than I thought, and it's an apple of gold that's come out of the Old Testament <laughs> that we can hold on to and, and maybe has value that we didn't know before. So with that being said, that's all ramp up and lead in to Second Chronicles. We're going to cover 19 verses, uh, much quicker than you think we will today. Uh, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And, and as we start to, you say, are you ever going to get to the passage? Yes, I will. Hold on just a second. Um, a couple more things. Um, it, Understand, too, as we get ready to move into this passage, um, there is no parallel or other uh, supplemental story that kind of adds to this in any other chapter. Jehoshaphat, by the way, is, is mentioned in Kings, but there's more space devoted to Jehoshaphat in Chronicles than in Kings. And so that's why we kind of land here. This is where we find out more about him uh, in, in Scripture if you're trying to cross-reference things. Um, as we begin the story in verse 1, Jehoshaphat has become king and he immediately begins to strengthen the cities of Judah to take a stand against an attack from Israel. And you have to remember that during these days, it's a divided kingdom, Judah and Israel. Uh, and they are, they, are, they are battling each other a bulk of the time. It says in verse 1, I'm finally there. His son Jehoshaphat became king in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in every fortified city of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah in the cities of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. Now, I point out in verse 2 as you look at it, and again, I said leave your Bibles open. He stationed troops in every fortified city of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim. There's a couple of things that go on here, and you need to understand it just by way of setting up what's going on. He is fortifying some, and he's actually putting troops, it's believed, into areas that just never had him before. In other words, Jehoshaphat, on purpose, is setting up, because he's anticipating an attack from Israel, he sees the danger. And so he's trying to be wise, and he's trying to get in front of it. He's doing something that his father had not done. 
And he's taking seriously or more seriously the need to protect his people, the people that he's been entrusted with. And so he's being proactive here. So even in the first two verses, although we just blow past it, what we may not be understanding is that in dangerous times, in a dangerous world, here's somebody who's taken seriously the responsibility as a leader to be proactive. That's what we see because this man is a godly king, and we're going to discover that. And he takes his role seriously, and so he's now moving in to do something that had not been done or needed to be done better. That's how the whole story begins to open and unfold. In your worship flyer, I've given you three anchor points for the story. Three jump off points, if you will, uh, as we're talking about this today. Because we're talking about the right way to jump this morning. And so the first thing I want you to see is that there are right words and the right thing. Right words and the right thing. In other words, I want you to notice the importance of saying the right words and doing the right things. Um, We discover in the first few verses uh, that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed in the example of King David, verse 3, it says this. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked by his commands, not according to the practices of Israel. So the Lord established a kingdom in his hand. Then all Judah brought him tribute, and he had riches and honor in abundance. And his mind rejoiced in the Lord's ways, and he again removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. As I read that, it dawned on me once again that how often is it when you're reading the Old Testament or reading of the Old Testament kings that David is always used as the measure of the king? David is a man after God's own heart. We know David's story. We know the importance of David in Scripture. And so now we find that Jehoshaphat walked in the ways of King David. If a king walked after David's example, they prospered. If they did not, they failed. And that is the story of the kings as we look at them in the Old Testament. Jehoshaphat immediately is introduced as someone who is doing some things that seem to be proactive, and then we begin to discover in verse 3 why. Because he walked with the Lord. I mean, he was now driven by a desire to do things, as David had done, to have some of the success that David had. To be that kind of king, not the kind of king that his father was. His father wasn't a good king. And he determined that he would be different. And so David becomes his measure, the standard of king, because David is one who walked with God and who knew God. And so as a king, he wants to make sure that that is the focal point of his life. In verse 3, there's another statement in there as well. It says, Jehoshaphat does not seek the Baals. He bailed on the Baals, in other words. Uh, he doesn't consult with the Baals. And so, of course, the Baals were false gods. Um, and what it also means is something that's there, that you know is there, that maybe you just don't spend long enough looking at. But what does it suggest about the other kings who followed Baal? Well, it, the conclusion is simple. They were getting um, direction for their life from false gods. In other words, they were drawing upon false gods, things that weren't real. And then from that, they were basing, you know, the decisions that they made. And and since those gods were false gods and they didn't exist, then the other question you ask is, well, whose guidance then was the king really following? Well, they were doing what they wanted to do, in other words. Because if you're trying to seek advice from a god that's not a god, and you're seeking advice from a false god, and you're saying, okay, well, this is why I'm going to do it this way, basically you're justifying what you want to do. 
Because if you're seeking authority from a source that's not an authority or doesn't even exist, uh, let me paraphrase it for you. You're winging it. And so a lot of what we find in Scripture when you're reading about these guys that worship Baal, uh, Baal wasn't going to do anything for them. And you find time and time again, that's the reality of what we find in the Old Testament. So what are these guys doing? They'll listen to the voices that were speaking into the world. They're winging it. They're making it up. Jehoshaphat steps onto the scene. And in a few verses, we've already seen for him as a king, he's wanting to be blessed and he's wanting to have success, but he's also wise enough and smart enough to know that that success is going to come when he makes a decision to do the right thing. And he's also determined that the way to do the right thing is by understanding the right words, which is the word of God. I mean, he's going to live his life based on some godly principles and the teachings of the ways of God that have come through the years that he's now going to go back and glean because this is how he's chosen to lead. It's wise. It's smart. It's a decision that will change the trajectory of his life every day of his life. Back in 1982, some of you remember 82, the Today Show in New York City did a live interview with the Reverend Billy Graham. When Graham arrived at the studios, one of the program's producers informed one of Dr. Graham's assistants that they had reserved a private room for him because they knew that he would probably be praying before the broadcast. The assistant thanked the producer for the thoughtful gesture but told him that Mr. Graham would not need the room. Dr. Graham had no need to use that room. And the producer was a bit shocked at that because they thought they were doing something nice for Dr. Graham. Um, And he was shocked that the world-famous Christian leader, spokesman, uh, pastor of presidents, would not wish to pray before being interviewed on live national television. And Mr. Graham's assistant responded, Mr. Dr. Graham is not nervous about being interviewed on national television this morning. And what you need to know is this morning, when he started his day, before he ate breakfast, he prayed. He prayed as he was eating breakfast. I know for a fact that he prayed over here on the way in the car. And he'll probably be praying through most of the interview, even while he's talking. Because Dr. Graham lives his life in an attitude of prayer. Uh, That's how you do the right thing, by the way. You zone in and you listen for the right words. They come from God. And so in your life, immediately, Jehoshaphat sets the standard for us. And if you're going to hear the right words and do the right thing, you have to ask yourself, am I listening to the right words and am I doing the right things? Because the two are connected. And so if you're going to hear the right words in your life, there is no shortcut for talking to God. I can say, how's your prayer life? Then we could talk about that for the rest of the morning, but we're not. We have a few more verses to cover. But I also will tell you this, and you've heard me say it before. If you're not reading God's word, you're not hearing his word. So even this morning as we go back into the Old Testament and as we kind of drill down into that, as we start kind of rooting through it a little bit to to glean some things uh, that we can grow from, God's word, it matters, it works, it fits, it applies today just like it did. And if you are short-circuiting that, I promise you, you're not hearing the right words. And you got to read it. And you need to study it. And it doesn't have to be a lot. A little goes a long way. 
But get into God's word and anchor into it so you can find the direction that you need for life. For King Jehoshaphat, he knew there was no shortcut to it. He was going to have to draw back on the teachings of the ancient ways because the world around him was not. And I go back to what I said earlier. We live in a crazy time, right? We live in a world that seems to be off the rails in some ways where nobody's doing spiritual things, but everybody's doing what they want to do. We don't call it this, but they're listening to the bales. Bail on that. Get back into God's word and discover again what it is that we need to know about truth and how to live life. Right words. Learning to do the right thing. The willingness to do the right thing in the right way always matters. And connecting with God is the only way I know to do it. That would be point one. Point two, or jump up point two, would simply be this. Um, right words and the right way. And if you have your worship flyer, you can see that as well, because that also begins to emerge from the passage. Uh, in the third year of Jehoshaphat's reign, he sent teachers throughout the land to teach people the ways of God. Look at verse 7. Here we go. In the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent his officials, Ben-Hail, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, and Micaiah, to teach into the cities of Judah. So far, so good. You're looking ahead. <laughs> the Levites were with no, the Levites were with uh, them. Uh, the Levites with them were Shemaiah, Methaniah, Zabadiah, Ashahel, Shimaramoth, Jehanath, or Jehanathan, Adonijah. Tabajai, Tabajad and I, a couple priests, I call them Eli and Jeho, but they're Lishama and Jehoram with these Levites. They taught throughout Judah, having the book of the Lord's instruction with them, and they went throughout the towns of Judah and taught the people. Again, besides me bothering ancient the Hebrew there, uh, and you don't know him any better than I do, uh, don't miss the point. You look closely at the passage, and we discover they went throughout the towns of Judah, and they taught the people, and they went having the book of the Lord's instruction with them. In other words, Jehoshaphat now has said, we're going to take the right words, and we're going to get them out in the right way. And so he mobilizes the Levites and the priests, and he puts them to work. And he says, you guys are going to go to work, and you're going to start communicating the message, you're going to do what you need to do. And we're going to go out, and we're going to go into the cities, and we're going to get among the people, and you're going to get in front of the people, and you're going to instruct them and teach them in the ways of God. Not your ways, not your thoughts, but God's ways and God's thoughts. That matters. That makes us stronger as a nation. That helps us be better. And so all of a sudden, we have another glimpse into how Jehoshaphat thought. Because he believed that if he would send out these teachers throughout the kingdom, he is a king who sees value in the people understanding, in the people knowing the ways of God, of how important it is to live that way, and the value of having that kind of standard in your life. Not because of what the king says, but because of what God says. 
This is a radical shift from the life that his father had lived. This is a radical shift from how most kings went through that era. And here's Jehoshaphat stepping up and stepping in and making sure not only does he live his life by a standard, but making sure that the people that he is in charge of understands that there's a standard. And that standard is going to be God, the right words in the right way. He believed that if they knew God, their lives would be better and that the kingdom would be better. And that sounds simple, but it's not. We live in a day and age where if we would decide to live our lives for God, allow those close to us to catch a glimpse of that in us, share that with other people, it improves the life of their world, and then our world becomes better. It's touching and changing the world with the love of Christ. Right words in the right way. At a routine traffic stop last year, five-year-old Mackenzie Brown decided to make a sacrifice. She decided to give up her own stuffed moose to a Pennsylvania police officer, hoping it would keep him safe because she every once in a while would see the news with her parents. He knew that police officers lived in a dangerous world. She was holding a stuffed moose out the window and tried giving it to me, the police officer said on the Facebook page he created on behalf of the moose. I tried to tell her politely, no, thank you, I don't want it, but she told me that she wanted me to have that moose so I could be safe. He said, clearly, there was no way I could turn the moose down. And so he took the moose. And the officer held on to Mr. Moosey for a short time and then decided to pass along the stuffed animal and the story of why he had it to different first responder units. It was a hit. If you go today, not now, <laughs> but today to your Facebook page, because many of you have those, and type in <coughs> Mr. Moosey, You'll find the page. And I said, not now. <laughs> Use your electronic devices. Stay in Second Chronicles now. But you'll discover that Mr. Moosey has made visits to Chicago, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, serving alongside air marshals, national guards, fire departments, and even the NYPD Intel Terrorism Office. Mr. Moosey gets around. The Facebook is officially called Mr. Moosey's World Tour. It's updated almost weekly with stories and pictures of where the moose is, but also the impact of the presence of the moose and the sentiment and how important it is to share those ideas and share with others those thoughts. You say, well, that's a silly story, but here's the deal. The kindness, the generosity, the service, the ministry, and the truth that you speak into the lives of others impacts them more than you know, and they will share it, and the ripple effect of it is huge. And if a five-year-old girl giving a stuffed animal brings encouragement to a nation of law officers and first responders, just imagine what you can do with a kind word, the truth of God, speaking into the places that you go on a regular basis. As much as a stuffed moose can change the lives of others, I promise you the love of Jesus changes everything. 
understanding. When you use the right words in the right way, it makes a huge difference. And the impact is huge. It ripples through. And as I said that, we go back to the passage again, because now as Jehoshaphat has these Levites and the priests going out and teaching the people, an amazing thing happens that we catch a glimpse of in verse 10 and 11. It says this. The terror of the Lord was on all the kingdom of the lands that surrounded Judah. In other words, as they began hearing about God and who he was and how the people were turning to God, it scared the neighboring countries. It scared the enemies. And so it says they didn't fight against Jehoshaphat. And then it says some of the Philistines also showed up and brought gifts of gold or of, of silver as a tribute to Jehoshaphat. And the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. In other words, as God's word began to become the standard for the people of Judah, it wigged out and terrified the neighboring nations so much so that even the enemies or even those that aren't so friendly toward Judah all of a sudden said, you know, we need to make nice with this king. He seems to be a God guy. And that makes us a little nervous. And so what had been adversaries in a previous generation, all of a sudden they begin to step up. And even if they don't necessarily like him, there's a respectful fear. Somebody said, let's give him some stuff. Maybe he'll like us more. Meaning that if there's a time that we need mercy, maybe he'll give it to us. Maybe we'll catch a break. And all of a sudden, the ripple effect of a king who wants to set up and start establishing a rule on the rule of God begins not just to change Judah, but then begins to impact nations that have nothing to do with God and have nothing that they necessarily want to do with God, but it gets their attention. You ever notice how that happens? That even people who don't want much to do with God, God does have the ability to get their attention. And there's a lot of times that we think that what we do for God doesn't matter. And we talked about this not too long ago on Wednesday evening. And we think that, that the God stuff doesn't count. And sometimes our work is really, you know, we don't see the results from it. But it does matter. And it counts. And what you do for God is never in vain. And the ripple effect and the impact is huge. Right words in the right way always matter. And the last thing that I would share with you out of the story this morning is this. I want you to notice the right words at the right time. Jehoshaphat became powerful. And he stored up supplies and he organized his army according to ancestral clans. If you look closely in verse 12 through 19, it says this, Jehoshaphat grew stronger and stronger. He built fortresses and storage cities in Judah and carried out great works in the towns of Judah. He had fighting men, brave warriors in Jerusalem. These are their numbers according to the ancestral families. For Judah, the commanders of thousands, Adonai, the commander, and the 300,000 brave warriors with him. Next to him, Jehonan, 
the commander, and 280,000 with him. Next to him, Amasiah, son of Zikri, the volunteer of the Lord, and 200,000 brave warriors with him. From Benjamin, Elidia, brave warrior, and 200,000 with him, armed with bow and shield. Next to him, Jehozabad, that's a name, Jehozabad, and 180,000 with him, equipped for war. These were the ones who served the king besides those he stationed in the fortified cities throughout all of Judah. In other words, you begin looking at this thing, and now remember, as we're setting this whole story up, and we're going to spend a few weeks unpacking this a little bit and catch some things along the way, this has now all started with a guy who's decided, we're going to anchor back to the word of God. We're going to get God's word out through our country. We're going to move through Judah, and you're going to go out and you're going to teach it. Not what you think, but what God thinks. And then we find out that that starts impacting not only the people that he's in charge of, but the people around him. So much so they start bringing him stuff. Well, what did he do with the stuff? Well, Scripture tells us he grew stronger and stronger. Well, yeah. I mean, they're bringing tributes to him. They're trying to pay him off. They're trying to, uh, to, to give him, they're, they're giving him animals. They're giving him stock. And so what does he do? He starts building up storehouses. He starts strengthening the people. He starts moving warriors out. And he doesn't know how necessarily at the front end to divide up. So he used, goes back to the ancestral clans. He goes back to the model, biblical model. We'll start amassing our armies that way. And you start hearing the numbers of them. These aren't just like 10 people. These are hundreds of thousands that he's now mobilizing. And it doesn't include the fortified cities as well. And so now all of a sudden, he begins taking all those things that he's been hearing, all the things that he's been trying to teach the people, all the standards he's been putting out there about the right words, and now the timing is right, and he begins to strengthen and fortify the cities and get them ready for whatever is going to come next. Because he knows there's something coming. He knows the times are tough. He understands the times are turbulent. And he knows that he can't wait until later to get ready for what may come tomorrow Wisdom dictates, because why? He's building on some godly principles. Wisdom dictates that you live your life for this day, but at the same time, you're wise and you move toward the future. And here we have a king who begins to do that. The other side note that you don't know unless you've taken the time to read commentators and why would you, I wouldn't, except I do this, is that a lot of these guys, too, that Jehoshaphat is trying to catch up and become part of this army of Judah. These are folks who have fled Israel as well. These are folks who have defected from Israel. And so he's trying to set the standards and he's trying to put the right people in place with them so that these armies are strong. So if battle comes, they're ready. And so he's doing all of this and he's trying to dial in so the right words at the right time in the right way, doing the right things will become the, become the standard for Judah. So that as a king, he will be different, but as a nation, they will be strong. The same thing is true for you. Taking the right words, applying them in the right way, doing the right things at the right time. That changes everything about us. Allow it to change. It's baseball season. Let me give you a baseball story. The tension hung in the air. Two runners on the corner. Batter crowded the plate. Pitcher waited for the sign. He got the sign, he unleashed a fastball high, very high, and very inside. The batter ducked. Both benches stood. 
and started to take the field, and the umpire put out his hands, called him off, and called him back into the dugouts, and restored calm for just a moment. Issued a warning to both teams, both managers. Walked over, pointed at them, told them to keep their teams in the dugout. Went back, took his spot behind the plate. Now with the count at three balls and two strikes, the prospect of a brawl on every pitch. The man who was calling the game behind the microphone knew exactly what to do. I quote, It all comes down to this, ladies and gentlemen, the moment of truth. An epic confrontation where two men meet on the field of battle, but only one will prevail. And in kitchens and living rooms across the country, fans leaned into their radios and held their collective breaths as a pitcher went in to the stretch. As the pitcher started to deliver the, pi the pitch, the runner on first bolted toward second, but the pitcher ignored him and served up a wicked slider. The batter swung and hit the ball deep, deep, deep into right field, just outside the foul pole. Foul ball. The catcher walked back to the mound. Fans remained on their feet. Catcher returned behind the plate. Pitcher threw once again, this time a changeup. Another crack of the bat, another foul ball. This one to the third base side, up into the second deck. The announcer calling the game described the chaos as two men in the stands fought for the souvenir baseball, painting a picture so vivid and real that in the listener's mind's eye they could see it, but the drama was just getting started. The next three pitches were all foul balls scattered to different parts of the stadium. So were the next three pitches after that. It was an extraordinary opportunity for the tall, good-looking Irish kid with a radio voice and a Hollywood smile that was behind the microphone, and he was loving it, and he made the most of every second of calling the game. The batter steps out of the box to disrupt the pitcher at the last moment. The pitcher is prowling the mound like a tiger, getting ready to pounce on the next pitch. Every moment of this encounter was a chess match. A steely battle of the wheels, looking for a moment when the other would break or crack, and the announcer described it all. His baritone voice dripped in anticipation, and the listeners were now standing in their own homes waiting for what was going to happen next. Another foul ball. Another after that. Another after that. Another after that. Finally, after 14 foul balls, a half a dozen conferences between the catcher and the pitcher on the pitcher's mound. And nearly 13 minutes of unrelenting tension, the man behind the mic again set the scene for the final time. I quote, here we are, another moment of truth, another payoff pitch in this battle of giants. Both men are exhausted, but both understand the importance of what happens next and what they must do. Here's the pitch. It's fast. It's over the middle plate. It is a call strike. And the side is retired. And so ended one of the most unusual at-bats in the history of baseball. A called third strike on a batter of no particular importance thrown by a pitcher who had a very unspectacular career 
in a game that was not really unusual or overly important in all of baseball history, except for the portion I just told you. It was chronicled by an announcer who made it all up. He made the whole thing up. Now, it is true, in fairness, that the batter did strike out. But all those foul balls, all those trips to the mound, all the tension on the bench was a figment of the sportscaster's imagination. Because you see, in those days, baseball games were called by announcers and radio stations in places very far, far away from the ballpark. The announcers would sit in small gray rooms in front of large gray microphones waiting for a telegraph operator to send them the details of the play-by-play of the game which they would then read and bring to life best they could with the eye of their imagination to make it work. On this particular day, on this particular night, the telegraph signal was interrupted when the count went to three and two. And because it quit working, the announcer was now sitting behind an open mic, broadcasting a game with no information coming in. But he didn't panic. He simply closed his eyes and decided that he would call the game exactly as he imagined it. And the fans loved him for it. As a matter of fact, it goes down as one of the most memorable radio baseball broadcasts in the history of baseball. He would later say that as he was trying to kill time and creating this moment, it was almost anticlimactic when the telegraph finally started working again and said, call third strike, batter's out. That's all he got. (laughs) And he said later it was almost everything he could do to not laugh out loud at this moment that he had created for fans and built such drama up for that simple ending. Ah, Third strike, no one cared. Okay, game's over, let's go. And that was it. But it might come as no surprise that many years later in a much bigger game that Americans listened and this time watched with rapt attention to the words uttered by this now legendary broadcaster who understood the importance of choosing just the right words at just the right time and saying them in just the right way. So people might do the right thing. This time, once again, the tension hung in the air. It was very real, very thick. The prospect of a brawl or a battle seemed very real. And once again, when the moment came for the payoff pitch, this time the words that he chose did not appear on a teleprompter, they were a variation, a deviation, if you will, from the script that he was supposed to be using that had been approved for the event by multiple sources and seen by multiple eyes. And those words were now on a podium in front of him. And the agreement was he would stick with the words. The words that he chose on this day were his and his alone. He was the only one who knew he was going to do it. He may have been the only one that could have done it. But he did it. And he uttered the line, Mr. Gorbachev, 
tear down these walls. It was no game, but the words were a strike. And they were thrown hard, and they were thrown fast, and they were thrown right down the middle. Delivered with no script by a man behind a microphone, by a man who understood the importance of the right words at the right time, said in the right way, so the people would hear the right thing and perhaps do the right thing. You know where the words came from, right? Ronald Reagan, 40th President of the United States, said those words. And in effect, the Cold War came to an end. He also was the same guy that called the baseball game. The same guy that understood the power of words and the impact that they could have in the lives of people. When you look at the life of Jehoshaphat, understand that in you, for you, the now what, is that we live in a world where the challenge is always to take the time to find the right words. And by the way, the right words are never your words. They're the words that God wants you to say. Find the right words. Deliver them at the right time. Not on impulse. Not when you're feeling like it. Not when an emotional moment hits you. But discover the timing that God has for you to speak into the lives of others. Say them in the right way. In a way that will be heard. In a way that will resonate. In a way that makes sense. In a way that people need to hear it. And then back up the words by you doing the right thing. By living out and fleshing out what it is that you're trying to communicate. When you do that, you touch and change the world with the love of Christ. Jehoshaphat changes the world because of his willingness to do that. Bow your heads and hearts. Let's pray. Lord, it's a story that for us, we realize it happened a long time ago in a place that we're not familiar with, in a setting and environment that seems very foreign to us, and yet sometimes when we listen to the news, sometimes when we look at the world around us, maybe it's not so foreign after all. We discover the importance of learning to do and say and be the person that you want us to be with the right words, at the right time, said in the right way, doing the right thing. God, I pray that we would be those people. Lord, we can't be that without you. And so there's some who are listening this day, some who are uh, hearing this, some who will watch or download. And Lord, it begins with the moment that we believe, trust, and follow you. It begins with a moment of decision. And Lord, I pray that for each of us, the decision to become that follower, to follow Jesus, to give our lives to you, would be one that we would make that would set us on a journey that would change not only us, but the people around us forever. Lord, for others who have already made that decision, we live in a world that desperately, desperately needs to understand and know about you. And so we carry that responsibility. And so Lord, I pray that this would be a day where we would be reminded again of the right way to do things. 
and you would challenge us, compel us to do just that. And to never settle for anything less. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.